0: Hello, my name is Michelle Yana Chan, The Wandering Book Collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. I'm joined by the writer, Efra Hirsch, whose book is British. That's harder to say out loud on a podcast, than it is to see written down. On the book jacket, the ish is in parentheses, a riff on being happy-ish or angry-ish. So, Brit-ish. The strapline on race, identity, and belonging. Efwa explores the contemporary crisis in British national identity and takes the reader on a personal journey as she herself grapples with her own sense of belonging. The book won the Royal Society of Literature, Jerwood Prize, Efwa, welcome. Thank you, Michelle. The last time we met, Efwa, was almost two years ago at the Vanity Fair International Women's Day lunch, just before the UK's first COVID lockdown. And I must say those few hours in the room sustained me over the following months. There was such buzz and such camaraderie among that bunch of strangers thrown together. So I wanted to start by you filling in the gap since then, because you usually lead a pretty peripatetic life, but with movement curtailed, is there somewhere, a particular place that you have missed? Yes,
1: I just want to say that the last time I saw you, I think may have been my last normal day in uh, more than two years, because it was the last time you were able to really gather and feel like that was an ordinary thing to do before the lockdowns. So it was a it was
0: a, a very happy memory. Um now I've forgotten the question. <laughs> I'm, so I'm wondering because of our freedom being curtailed, is there somewhere yeah. in particular you've really longed to be? I think in the air, because I do enjoy
1: traveling and I really thrive off the stimuli of being in different places and I have to say that in the air is where I do some of my best writing I am super focused on airplanes I just love the way it cuts out distraction most of the time there's no mobile there's no wi-fi and I just get so much done so I miss that and also I'm somebody who still gets such a thrill and joy out of being in different places and different cultures and different environments so the promise of arriving somewhere different also really stimulates my creativity so I have missed that but I have been really fortunate that I have been able to keep traveling during the lockdown mainly because of journalistic assignments that have required me to go to different places but they've been strange experiences you know I spent a week in a hotel in Milan just so that I could do one interview but I had to quarantine when I landed and then when I got back to UK I had to quarantine so it's really heightened that experience of journalism because whatever the assignment is there's such a cost before and after to have this one in-person meeting and that's helped me really appreciate I suppose The value of those meetings. We used to just take them for granted. It was just an everyday thing. Whereas now you have to be so selective about who you actually meet in person because it requires you to sacrifice about two weeks of your freedom, one on either side. So I have been able to still travel a little, but obviously it's different. I mean, in terms of the place that I feel my creativity stems from or that I keep going back to emotionally, I would say that is Ghana. And I do go to Ghana. Usually, every year, usually several times a year, and there was a period where I couldn't go to Ghana at all in 2020, and that was that was really hard, and I missed it a lot.
0: Well, it it does it features in your book, of course. Although you were raised in Wimbledon in Southwest London, which features heavily as as the backdrop to your childhood, um, and and you were at odds with it. The the book unfolds with you on on a quest. you really, need to find a place you felt you could belong, and. That took you to West Africa, to the region of your mother, not immediately to Ghana, to Senegal first, where you got a job. The quote I remember was to find the place where my identity could become whole. Uh And you also added after that, it was a flawed project, doomed to failure. Uh Do you still think of that experience in that that way? I do, but I think... I feel much more positive
1: about it than maybe I did at that time. My journey was that I was always so conscious of being the other. Growing up, I was the black girl in a very white part of London, as you said. But then when I started finding black communities, I was the posh girl, the mixed race girl. When I moved to Africa, I was, as far as many Ghanaians or Senegalese or other West Africans concerned, I was white. Um, And so that was painful in the sense that I had this, I now think in hindsight, unrealistic expectation, that there was a place I could just go and not be other and just blend in and just feel as if I belonged in a really whole sense. But the reason I feel positive about it is that what I think I've learned is that I started off being belonging as a destination. And now I realize it's a journey. And I don't, any longer have an expectation that there's anywhere I'll go where I will be like everyone else, or I'll just sort you know, i have all the same cultural references as the people around me. But I think I found peace with that. And now I'm really embracing the journey of just constantly being in that process of interrogating my heritage my inspirations our global narratives around race culture identity belonging they're such live topics there there are no fixed answers so I suppose my coping mechanism for the for the lack of clarity or the lack of finality in some place I can go and fit in has been to really fully lean into that conversation and that search and realize how many of us are on it and that's been an incredible source of inspiration and support and Um, camaraderie to realize how many people of such different diverse backgrounds are on that same journey of asking those questions of searching and actually many of the people who I in my identity crisis I projected onto them that they had this wholeness they're also on a journey you know and I think it's when you feel conscious of being other you assume that everyone else has very cohesive clear Narratives about who they are. And as as you really delve deeper into people's own experiences, you realize actually that's all an illusion.
0: And I'd like to talk about the idea of place anchoring you to, to belonging, now that it's not necessarily a destination but a journey. I and I remember this, there was a boy in the book from Blackburn, just north of Manchester in England, and he talked about Islam becoming um what he had as identity because he felt. British people wouldn't accept him as British. He'd never been to Pakistan. And it was that that he he felt was his sense, he got his sense of belonging from or his roots. Are you also looking beyond place and geography?
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the benefits of doing this work is that when you interrogate these ideas about class, race, nationality, You then start to become liberated and realize how much agency you have in creating your own identity, your own communities, your own sense of belonging. So in my case, I think the community I found that very specifically speaks to me is the kind of African diaspora and other people who also have this connection to the African continent, but haven't grown up there, but feel connected to it and believe in it. And are motivated to build something that will make the world better for people of African heritage. That's a community that I have so much in common with. And, you know, we don't share a geographic location. We don't share the same country of origin. We share almost nothing except that ideological commitment to our African heritage and our desire to contribute to the future of that culture in a positive way. And I think that's something that has, I probably couldn't have imagined finding in such a fulfilling way when I started on my journey. So I think it's true that sometimes people find a religion, sometimes people find a diaspora, sometimes people find a global culture. And that I think is exciting about this moment because the ways in which we're connected and we are creating new narratives globally And I have been able to tap into communities. For example, I've just had my hand tattooed, see here. And that was, um, it's my first ever tattoo. And that was inspired really by this kind of global community of feminist tattoo artists who are reclaiming indigenous tattoo practices using hand poking instead of machines, going back to the ways which all ancient cultures, and especially women, use tattoos to explore heritage and Milestones and to celebrate their bodies through aging. So, I don't think I would ever have even had that on my radar were it not for the ways in which
0: we create new cultures and identities now. So, I think that's really exciting. I'd love you to think back on some of the journeys that you've had between London and Accra, these two very important bases for you, let's call them. And some of the flights, since you love a plane journey, um, <laughs> some of the flights that you've taken, some to maybe leave London when you went to move to Ghana. And then maybe when you left and, um, but also more recently, I w- I'd love you to talk about how kind of the departure, the takeoff, the landing, kind of some of the emotions that you get from the flight between these two cities. Well, it's interesting that you ask about flights because it's actually a very political issue because
1: getting to the African continent is not straightforward. And <clears throat> I used to live in Senegal, as you said, which is a former French colony. And to this day, the only direct flights to Senegal are through France and maybe now some other European countries, but you can't fly direct from Britain to any Francophone country in Africa. So when I lived in Senegal, I used to have to traverse the Sahara sometimes four times to get to another African country. For example, to get to Accra, I would often have to fly Senegal, Paris, Paris, London, London, Accra, and the same on the way back. And these are two countries that are both in West Africa. So the experience of traveling among West African countries in between them is actually a process that kind of radicalizes you about the colonial legacy and makes you realize how real it is. Everything is designed to facilitate the colonial relationship, not to make it easier for Africans to move around between their own countries. Also, I think for most people of African heritage who grew up in Europe the first time they ever go to their African country of origin or any African country is quite a profound emotional experience and there are so many visceral things that happen when you step off the plane but one and I, I've had so many other people say this I thought it was like my original interpretation but when I first went to Ghana I remember stepping off the plane and thinking that it was the heat from the engines that was blasting me because I just couldn't reconcile that the warmth on my skin I just never felt anything like it and for anyone who hasn't been to West Africa it's obviously it's like being in a hot country but there's something I think quite unique about the humidity and about the almost the texture and the smell of the air that I've never I've traveled a lot and I never felt anything quite like the fragrant closeness of the air in Ghana when you land so I've never had a sensory experience like that in my life that was the first thing and then of course you see that everyone is black everyone is black and that sounds quite obvious (laughs) like you're in an African country and everyone is black but it hadn't occurred to me the first time I went to Ghana that there was a world in which everyone was black and not only was everyone black but the authority figures were black you know the the immigration officers the framed picture of the president on the wall the police as well as the people who work in the airport and the stewards. And it was, I suppose I hadn't realized the absence of seeing Black people in positions of power and authority until I saw it in Ghana. And that made me for the first time really reflect on what I experienced growing up in the UK and the messaging from our society about the place that Black people occupy. Because and I grew up in the 80s, you didn't see Black people in suits or in positions of power. So that was a a really profound experience. So all this happens at the same time when you disembark from a plane in a West African country. And then there's like the sounds and the smells and it's
0: changed now, but the first time I went to Ghana, the airport was chaos. And And in terms of how you're feeling, perhaps in the silver tube before you deposit yourself on the tarmac, Like, are you loaded up with expectation and these dreams to be fulfilled?
1: Yeah, well, there's such an atmosphere on any flight still today, any flight to Ghana, for example, because you'll have a significant proportion of the flight will be Ghanaians who live in the UK, who are either going home or going to visit family. And there is just such a vibe on that plane. People are wearing their best clothes. They've had their hair done. They've got gifts for their family. There's this just joy I think at being back in their culture in a place where they belong where they feel more free where the climate is more hospitable all of these things and you really realize it when you come back because the contrast between the flight to Ghana and the flight back from Ghana it's like night and day on when you land in Accra everyone claps everybody's kind of chatting and when you return back to the UK it's kind of like a funeral (laughs) everyone is Everyone is so quiet and sober, and even people who aren't going in—you know—there's always uh, white people, people from different European nationalities, Americans on the flight, and you feel as if everyone who's been in Ghana has been infected with that same spirit of not really wanting to leave. So it's quite
0: a it's quite an experience. Slightly begs the question: Why you? Why do you return to the yeah. gray sky? Yeah, I think everyone on that plane
1: is always asking
0: themselves that. To be honest. So you know I don't know what what you say when you know people ask the obvious question they do um, of people who look like you or who look like me, which is where is home or where do you come from? I mean these are the trigger questions that if you have a bit more time you might give the long answer, but often you give the short answer. And do you, is it multiple places? It really depends on the person
1: asking the question, I think, and their their lens and their motive. So if somebody has asked me that trying to kind of ascertain my legitimacy to be in Britain, which is probably the most frequent reason people ask that question. And often they don't know that's why they're asking it. But what they're really saying is, should you be here? How long have you been here? What contribution are you making here? So if that's the uh, motivation underlying question, then I tend to give as little as possible, because I reject the premise that I need to answer that question. If somebody is asking because they suspect we have a similar story about home and identity, then, I, then I'm then i more Interested in the conversation and it is difficult to answer and it probably depends on my mood really <laughs> if Ghanaians ask me I would definitely say I'm Ghanaian because I still want them to know that I'm that that's also my story and and often that's not a straightforward conversation because they're often skeptical and you know now also an increasing number of Black people who don't have direct Ghanaian heritage are returning to Ghana. It's become a focus for the diaspora to return, to reconnect with the African continent of their ancestors. You know, it was interrupted by the transatlantic slave trade. But as more maybe African-Americans or people of Caribbean heritage return to Ghana, people are taking on Ghanaian names and choosing places in Ghana that they want to live or have a home. And so people often assume that that's my story. So I then am keen to differentiate myself and let them know that I am actually Ghanaian. I have a Ghanaian mother. I have a Ghanaian lineage. I have a place that I'm that's really part of my identity. I'm not just randomly choosing one, not in any way to undermine people who are making that return for the first time, but it's just a different identity that I have so if it's if it's if that's the conversation then I'm I'm I tend to be specific and Ghanaians will interrogate you you know where are your people from where did they go to school what village what part of the village and I love the fact that I can answer those questions because that obviously took a lot of work for me to be able to even even know the answers
0: and you're raising a daughter now if we're too who um Mm -hmm. Who, when you write about her in your book, you say that you chose a surname for her, which is of your partner, mm-hmm. and partner. And how that would help guard her against the threat of rootlessness. I know you wrote this book a few years ago, but I I wonder if you said yeah. Because it suggests rootlessness, this kind of yeah. driftness or, or in-betweenness is, is maybe not good.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that there's this... Um, perception that you can give a child a kind of like identity neutrality and then they will choose their identity for themselves and I don't think it works like that you have to have an anchor you have to know where you're from you have to understand your ancestry and your lineage and then once you're secure in that knowledge you can choose what your sense of purpose is what cultural community you want to align yourself with how you want to navigate your life, who you want to serve and who you want to be part of. But I think that if you don't have that initial experience of being rooted, you can't grow different branches. So for me, it was important for her to have that. I know that she will make her own choices and self-identify how she chooses. And I think it's really important. And one thing I've learned really clearly is that everybody has to self identify no one can impose an identity on you from the outside and it has to be an identity that makes sense to you and has some correlation in the world because identities are all social constructs so the reason for that was twofold i think one was to give her the experience of having roots which she does have and i i personally understand the value of them having had such a complicated relationship with mine and also because if we hadn't given her that name the message it would have sent about the world would have just been too negative to contemplate. And I, I think that you have power in the choices you make and the language you use and the words you choose. So in a way that was voting with our belief that I believe in a world in which having an African name is not a disadvantage. And I'm actively create trying to create that world in my life and in her life. So it would be hypocritical to say, I believe in that, but to not take a decision that leads towards that, if that makes sense. But, and and actually the fact that it was even a dilemma, I think just says so much.
0: It does, but yeah, wearing your heart on your sleeve. The book takes us um, beyond your personal story to explore national identity too. Now I realize that my struggle was Britain's struggle, I think is your line. Do you think Britain, specifically, is struggling more than other countries, Afar?
1: I think Britain is struggling more than other countries. I think that Britain is uniquely addicted to a very toxic form of imperial nostalgia that is both dishonest, but also has created a deep fragility. And as a result of that, Britain cannot cope with quite basic conversations about objective facts about British history, about very recent experiences of, of of the end of empire, the reasons we've become the multicultural nation that we are. And it's now actively inhibiting our future. And I think that you know that that to me is manifest in Brexit, for example, which seems the evidence so far suggests was an act of self-destruction rooted in a yearning to get back to a perceived past that actually didn't exist. So I think that it couldn't be more tangible, the the destructive effects of Britain's failure to really confront the truth about its very recent history and the underpinnings of the nation it is today. And I don't think Britain is unique in that, but I do think Britain is particularly affected by it and i think other nations other european nations also have an imperial nostalgia but you know there's actually research that shows that in france and the netherlands for example and belgium that imperial nostalgia is more confined to the kind of elite class who personally materially benefited from empire in britain it's across the class system so many british people even those who ironically are still being disadvantaged by the same hierarchy and structure that created the empire are the most nostalgic for it. And that's why the dishonesty is so complicated because people have been persuaded to believe in something that's still actively harming them so much so that they'll fight for it, even as it continues to actively harm them. And that to me is the reality of Britain today. So it's very frustrating because I often find myself attacked by the very people who I can see through the work I've done in understanding this history are still being disadvantaged by the thing that I am critiquing. So how do you reach somebody who refuses to engage with the facts and is deeply invested in a system that is disadvantaging them? It creates a a challenge. As As somebody who is a storyteller like me, it really creates a challenge. And that's the challenge that I'm trying to rise to. I think you just have to be more creative and energetic in the way that you tell stories and reach people when there is
0: so much resistance to engaging with things um in a straightforward way. And are you feeling that level and that degree of resistance today as much as you were say when you wrote the end at, at the you know on the final page of British. Like how is that conversation going in the last few years? For
1: you? Well, I've been on a journey since then myself because I suppose writing the last word of my book was the beginning of me Engaging in that conversation very publicly. I did so many book talks. I was often on TV and panels and debates, where I was directly confronting people who reject those facts, that honesty. And I think, in hindsight, that was a process I had to go through because my message was that we need to talk about these things. We need to confront them. We need to have a conversation. So if that's your message, you can't say, "But I, I refuse to talk." And and I think I also believed in the idea that you could have a direct conversation that you could persuade people by simply prevent presenting them with the evidence well-researched well-structured arguments articulately presented that you could reach people and I had to kind of exhaust that to realize that our problems are so much deeper than that and now I don't engage in the same way so I'm now as I was saying trying to be much more creative and disruptive in the way I engage with those conversations so um so that's been a really uh, an interesting experience. But yes, I look back on kind of finishing the book at the beginning of that. And, and I really did exhaust it. I mean, I spent two years just constantly in the public domain, having those conversations, arguments, and often being the only person of colour, the only woman, the only black person, the only person who actually believes in telling the truth about this in a space where everyone else was defensive or aggressive and you know that can be a very draining experience because you're having to draw on the truth of your existence and your own personal story and what you actually see to persuade people that you your presence is legitimate, let alone the validity of your message. So I look back and I realize how hard that was, but very lazy it something that it was it was something that I was meant to do. Um but I also would feel I I have no regrets about it but I would regret it if I hadn't
0: stopped doing it when I learned what I needed to learn
1: from it which I now have.
0: And the transition is to a different kind of persuasion, a different type of activism, a different type of cajoling, of articulating, of storytelling.
1: Yeah, and I think you know, I'm interested in always pushing your boundaries and I I try to never get complacent and or just take the easy path or preach to the choir and I think someone like me who's been a human rights lawyer, a guardian journalist, a social affairs editor, there's something that I can do quite easily um, that reaches a certain audience but my challenge is to reach audiences who wouldn't usually engage with my work or wouldn't engage with those platforms and I you know I think that as a writer and a storyteller, that can only make me grow professionally and personally. So I'm working on scripted TV projects now. I make documentaries. I'm interested in ways that you can
0: influence people culturally and reach them emotionally through entertainment. Um, I'd like to to end where you begin in the book, Effol, which is a quote from Maya Angelou, which is, The ache for home lives in all of us, the safe place where we can go as we are and not to be questioned. Do you feel that ache still? I do.
1: I do, but now I'm grateful for it because it drives so much of my work. And I think it's it's an ache you can learn to live with rather than resent. And I think it's something that binds us all. And that's actually a, a, a source of great strength and power.
0: Afwahash, thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Thanks, Michelle. And thanks to the supporters of this podcast, Abercrombie and Kent, Toomey and Ultimate Library. Goodbye.